0: You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. Today's guest is really remarkable. Dana Mead has been in the life science business for over 30 years. He started out in sales and marketing at Johnson & Johnson, Uh, went on to run a very large division at Guidant. And since 2005, he's been a VC at Kleiner Perkins Caulfield Buyers. He's going to tell us all about the hidden world of venture capital, and I'm sure you'll be as fascinated as I am. Dana.
1: Thanks, Tina. Hi. So uh, Tina's told me so far this year you've had all entrepreneurs. Is that correct? So now you get to talk to someone that is, sits on the periphery of the ecosystem around innovation because entrepreneurs, in our view, certainly in our firm, sit right in the middle and are the most important part of that ecosystem. We sit on the outside. We're a support service just like the accountants and the auditors and the lawyers um, and the other folks that support innovation. Um, and try, try to support them moving forward. So what I'm going to do, uh, Tina said it might be helpful to just talk a little bit about venture capital, who we are, what we do, whose money we invest, how we think about doing new ventures, and just pass on a little bit on what we look for when an entrepreneur comes to visit us with a great idea. So what I'm going to do is start by just talking a little bit about Kleiner Perkins. We've been in the venture capital business now for 39 years. In our business, as you'll notice, if you ever go on a website of Venture Capitalists or talk to Venture Capitalists, we love logos. So you're going to see a lot of logos uh, whenever you deal with Venture Capitalists. So we kind of talk about In life sciences, our first investment was Genentech. And you can see many of the other names along here from Google and others uh, that we've been fortunate enough to be part of over the years. So... We invest in any venture caps. You talk to, very few will probably tell you they invest in small ideas, right? So we all try to invest in very big ideas, and we also try to invest in ideas that are going to make a difference. Our firm is really focused in three different practice areas: digital. And we do a lot, obviously, with Apple, with our iFund, and we have an S Fund. So those are really around mobile and social in the intersection of those two. In life sciences, we have a number of initiatives. One large one is around cancer. Another around stem cells. I'm going to talk a little more specifically about that. And then finally, green uh, tech—everything from hybrid cars to smart grid, et cetera—is another big focus of our firm. Now, I wanted to give you a little bit of an idea. We just try not to do this in a haphazard way when we look at opportunities in places we want to invest our capital this is just for the life science group and i'm going to use that as an example our main investment areas that you can see are around diagnostic devices and therapeutics obviously there's been a convergence around a number of those and you can see some of the key themes one around the emerging healthcare consumer all of us as healthcare consumers are much better informed more involved in the choice and also paying more of the load and we will pay more in the future and then also personalized medicine what I mean there that's the right therapy for the right patient at the right time many of us take drugs and other things that were shown to work in a large population but they might have only worked for about half the patients that were studied So we want to use drugs in the future that we know are going to work for us as individuals. Then around that little solar system that goes around the outside are a combination of a geography, China, as well as some different types of technology. Neuromodulation is implanting these neurostimulators in your bodies with leads which stimulate nerves to treat things like Parkinson's disease, um, sleep apnea, back pain, etc. IT-enabled services. Uh, We believe that's a very big area. If you look at what's happening in healthcare investing right now, um, biotech investing and device investing is flat or a little bit down, but there's a lot of focus on IT-enabled services. We just invested in two companies. One is Teladoc, which is telemedicine. So, we have 150 doctors around the country. All states have licensed doctors in this network, and you can call and get a doctor, speak to them in 20 minutes. They spend 15 minutes on the phone with you, and often it's the same thing as you'd get if you went in to see a primary care doc. With health care reform, there's going to be 40 million new people that are going to be now insured, many of which don't have primary care physicians, and when they get a cold, they go to the ER. That costs an insurance company $1,000 first using something like Teladoc. The other one we just invested in is called AwarePoint and what AwarePoint does is real-time asset tracking. So just think in a hospital of tagging all the IV pumps, tagging the physicians, the patients, the nurses in understanding where the, if, where the equipment is, where the nurses are, where the patients are, and the juxtaposition of all of those in having a software layer that does workflow, etc. So if a patient is exposed uh, to something they're not supposed to be aff- exposed to, a virus in the hospital, the way that's dealt with now is they have to pull all those charts and try to figure out where that patient was, what caregivers interface with that patient. Now with this type of technology within a minute and a half you can tell all that information that you needed to search before we've also focused on imaging i think all of you know that imaging is changing not only ct mri you know that it's now very small portable imaging that's going on there the ability to move imaging data they're very thick dense files to be able to move those around is interesting molecular diagnostics what we focused on there is really gene expression and using that again to identify the right therapy for the right patient We have a fund in China and we have life science partners in China. We believe there's a a ton of opportunity in China around life science ventures and we're focusing there. Cancer has been a focus and then finally uh, we have a company that focuses on stem cells. So just to give you an idea in just one area of our practice, how we use this type of model to guide our strategy. So this is what our firm looked like 30 years ago. Now these big wide rim glasses are coming back in again, right? And those ties are about the same width that we're wearing again now. But I just put this up here, not to just give my partners a hard time. A few of those, John Doerr in the middle, down the bottom, and Brooke Byers up on the far right are still active partners in our firm. But really to talk about how our industry has evolved. And this is our partnership now. And I'm proud of this, not that there are just a lot of people on there, but really proud of the diversity of our firm. Uh, really the background diversity, obviously gender and ethnic diversity we have in our firm, and you can see partners uh, from our practice also in China. So a much larger group focused now on practice areas, but a much more diverse group. And we believe that diversity that you see in the slide better reflects entrepreneurship and innovation around the world than that previous slide you saw. So if you just step back, and I use these dates, 1980 and 2006, to really talk about how the venture capital industry has changed dramatically. So if you look at 1980, there was approximately 100 venture capital firms and approximately 1,000 venture capitalists uh, in the country. By 2006, it's basically tenfold change. And just look at the amount of capital that was raised in those two years. In 1980, 2.1 billion and almost $30 billion in 2006. And then it's the amount of total venture capital money under management, $235 billion in 2006. So it went from a very small boutique industry to an asset class and how did that happen? It was really driven by university endowments and two in particular, Stanford here with Mike McCaffrey and Yale with Dave Swinson. And what they saw was they said and they wrote books about this, they said in your portfolio of assets that you manage, which would include equities, real estate funds, private equity, etc., you need to have part of that allocation in venture capital. Now, it wasn't a big allocation, it was two to three percent, but they said you needed to have venture capital. And so those endowments, pension funds, et cetera, then came and said, look, we want to get in venture capital. And that was really what drove the growth of the industry. So if you look at the industry from a geography, and these are 2008 data, but they haven't changed very much at all of the mix. So in this year, we're on track to have about $28 billion in investment, so very similar to this mix. And if you look at the mix of the investment, it's very similar to these data right now so information technology software is still the biggest area life sciences is a second with biotech being a little bit larger than devices uh... and then you can see green tech basically came out of nowhere in the mid 2000s, but now stays about four to five billion dollars a year of VC investment. Another interesting thing, if you're interested in venture capital, starting companies, California, obviously, is a great place to be. And about half of that venture capital is invested every year in California. And we'll talk about why that why that's the case. And you can see some of the other markets. I often travel around the country, and everyone wants to recreate. Well, we have in Research Triangle, Boston, San Diego, Minnesota area, the Northwest, are all interested in gathering uh, and gaining some of those investment dollars. So this just gives you an idea and we all know of uh, the challenges we had in 2007-2008 with economy and you can see it did affect the venture capital industry significantly. So the bottom of those two lines is the amount of venture capital that was invested and the top is what was raised and you can see this year these data are through the third quarter Um, we're on track to raise about 16 billion dollars and we're on track to invest about 28 billion dollars this year but it's been much harder for venture capital funds over the last few years to raise money and you might say why is that? well remember what happened to the endowments many of the endowments because they had a lot of their endowment in equity got smaller in order to meet some of their commitments, they needed to sell some of their assets, and they weren't as interested in some of the alternative investments like venture capital. So, if you look at this year so far, about 146 venture capital funds have raised money this year. They've raised about 26% more than they had year to date last year. Life science and green tech is down slightly, as I mentioned, in digital as you can imagine from what we all read every day is the strongest it's been in 10 years so there's a lot of investment going into digital opportunities and mobile and and, and also in social so whose money is this that we're investing I mentioned endowments foundations and there's funds of funds those are people that raise money and by their unique access are able to then invest those people's money uh, into venture capital firms. There's also individual investors. So CEOs that have been very successful that we've worked with historically, they're investors in our funds. And then the partners themselves, all of us invest in our funds also. And those are called the limited partners of a fund. And that's how it's made up. And every fund is a little bit different on the group that they have. Uh, We started with a much larger group of investors and over time focused down on a smaller group people ask sometimes how are venture capitalists paid not different than private equity we get a management fee on the money that we manage and then we also get part of the upside carry so real simple there's a hundred million dollars the management fees are normally between one and a half and two and a half percent on that money paid annually so let's pick two and a half so the firm would get two and a half million dollars a year on that hundred million dollars we would use that to pay people run our business do all our diligence etc and then we get carry and carry normally ranges between 20 and 30 percent what's that mean that means once we've returned that hundred million dollars to the LPs anything we make on that a venture capital firm will share twenty to thirty percent of that so if we double that money we would get twenty to thirty percent of that additional hundred million dollars and that's the carry so that's kind of the upside opportunity for venture capitalists. so I was asked, well, who are venture capitalists? And do you grow up as a kid saying, geez, I want to be a venture capitalist? I don't think so. Uh, and I think one of the reasons are, as we showed a little bit earlier, there's only seven or 8,000 venture capitalists, right? There are 750,000 doctors and about 800,000 lawyers, right? So I know when I was growing up, I wanted to be a lawyer. My brother wanted to be a doctor. Um, I'm a venture capitalist. He's a business person. So we didn't, we didn't actually weren't able to do that. But if you do go into venture capital, I've kind of broken it down into three cohorts here that are the most common. One is um, someone go- gets a good undergraduate degree, they get a little bit of experience, and they get some form of graduate degree. Sometimes it's a PhD, it could be an MD, it could be an MBA, and I'll talk about in our partnership we have a mix, mix of all these people. And that would come in as kind of a junior person, and often I see this out of uh, a good MBA program. People will join firms as a general partner. Some of those will have kind of a two- to three-year window in that firm, and then they'll be asked to go out and get some more operating experience. A few of them are able to work all the way through, up through the partnership. Um, but it's normally two- to three years, and different firms have different philosophies on that. That's one entry point for venture capital. Another entry point is someone gets a technical some form of degree like I've listed here, and they go out and get a different level of operating experience, maybe eight to ten years of operating experience, and then they come into venture capital. That's another very common place. They maybe come in as a principal or a junior partner in a firm. And then the last option is actually the one that I did, was where you get twenty kind of plus years of operating experience and then for some reason at that time, you either get recruited by a venture capital firm or you're at a place in your career, maybe you sold your company. In my case, our company, Guidant, was being purchased uh, by Johnson & Johnson at that time. It ended up being Abbott and Boston Scientific. But that was a natural place in my career where I looked at different options. There's no right choice across this continuum or wrong choice. Venture capital is a little bit different. We don't have a recruiting season. Uh, like the consultants do, like McKinsey comes here every year to recruit. We don't do that. So if you want to be a venture capitalist, one of the things you'll want to do, and we'll have more time in Q&A to talk about this, is you want to network and you want to talk to people, you want to meet people, you want to stay active in your network because the jobs are organic the way they present and it's a little bit different than others. But if we, I just look at my partners in the life science group, we have two MDs, uh, three MBAs, and a PhD. So kind of a mix like this. And we have kind of an equal group of where we entered uh, the business. So what do we do every day? Tina asked me this. Um, we don't play a lot of golf. People <laughs> think that. At least I don't. If you saw me play, you, I would prove it to you. Um, really, we spend our, our time in three big buckets. And I, I've listed the buckets kind of in um, ascending order here, where we uh, we, we look at a, a lot of investments. Uh, we probably... Uh, invest in one or two a year as an individual venture capital partner. I will probably look at two to three hundred ventures myself this year, actually either talk to someone on the phone or meet with someone in person. So we invest in a very small percent. I said one to two percent. It might be even a little bit lower than that. So we practice really hard every day to say no really, really nicely. Uh, And the reason why we do that is that person could two years later walk in with a Google or a Genentech. And so we always do and I do personally offer to help people and talk to people and we do that on a a regular basis. But once you have an established portfolio like I do where I'm on 12 boards, you don't have the time or bandwidth to look at too many ventures but so you have to be very efficient about your time. When I first started when I didn't have any boards, I spent 70% of my time looking at new ventures. But most venture capitalists once they're established, probably spend about 10 or 15% of their time looking at new ventures. Uh, The second thing you do is networking. For me, quite frankly, that's one of the most fun things I do and I would consider what we're doing right now, networking. So I meet with people all the time. I'm fortunate enough I get to mentor actually Mayfield fellow students. I saw one or two of the folks here tonight. Um, And we do a lot of that, meeting with other VCs. I call it the VC lunch where you meet with VCs and at the end of every lunch you say, we ought to do something together. Right, that's how every lunch ends, and there's a lot of VCs. And it, throughout your career, if you talk to people who've done this for thirty, forty years, there's ten to fifteen VCs they work with out of that whole cohort of VCs. And the reason why it's the people you're on boards with, the people you trust, the people you like, the people you want to work with over time. And so it's a small cohort of that. But we're not really in competition with each other because as companies continue to grow, they have a syndicate, and they'll normally have three, four five VC firms working with them. So it's a very collaborative thing. I I don't really consider it uh, having worked in operating roles where you actually hated your competitors. uh, It's not like that in venture capital at all. and then the last thing we do, which is a really fun thing, especially for someone with my background, is getting to work with the companies. And there are four really big areas where we spend a lot of time recruiting. And one theme that you'll hear from me is the people, obviously, are the most important in any business. The quality of the people, especially in small businesses, that don't grow like this. They grow like this. And they have many near-death experiences through their growth. You need great people that are built the ability to deal with that change, agile and, and make changes. Obviously, we help raising money. Uh, we work with strategy. And then we, one of the biggest things we do is just apply our network to whatever the challenges are that the company has. So there are really three things we look at. So a new venture walks, walks in our door. We break all the different risk into three major areas. And I'll pick life sciences to talk about. So we have technical and clinical risk in life sciences. So we try to figure out what that technical risk looks like. We try to put some boundaries around that risk, and we try to ask ourselves, is there a a way with a reasonable amount of capital for us to mitigate those risks? The second thing we look at is market risk. In our firm, uh, we're willing to take very gnarly technical risk, but we don't like market risk. So a bad thing in our firm would be that we solve this really difficult clinical problem or this really difficult technical problem. We take it to market, and the market yawns back at us. We don't want that. If we go through all that time and all that risk and all the hard work it took to get there, we hope the product is a commercial success. The most important area and area we spend a ton of time on is management. A lot of people say management. You do a lot of early stage investing, so it's two people, a dog and a patent walk into your office. I mean, is that the management? How do you think about that? Well, what we do is we look in that case, we look at who's associated with that venture. Who are the people that have given them money? Who are the people that are giving them advice? Is the quality of the team you have right now, when you combine that with the quality of the idea, will they most importantly attract great talent as they move forward as a team? And so in each of these areas, we're thinking about those three things. And those are the three most important things we look at in a new venture. So where do some of these new ventures come? And I'm going to use, come from. This is just a life science example. So if it's in the university setting, which it does happen, and we've invested in a lot of things out of Stanford, it usually comes from a combination of that group there, goes through an OTL office, that's the outplacement office. If it does that, we make an agreement with Stanford University. We pay them some milestone payments. They might get some equity, and there might be some royalty down the stream if the product does extremely well. Um, that's one form another is it just comes in the device world where innovation takes place unlike biotech where it's it's really a scientist working at a bench a chemistry bench in life sciences it's the intersection of the physician patients and what I call educated observers many times physicians because of the way they're trained they're trained to incrementally improve on a proven procedure so a lot of times they'll say well I really like that device but I want to be on a different angle now there are a set of very innovative physicians that do come up with a breakthrough technologies but usually what innovation is is a very educated observers people with backgrounds like yours watching a clinician interface with a patient and coming up with an idea so both of those either way you get to a point where if you have a great idea you want to try to get it funded and how do you get it funded we're going to talk a little bit more about that well you don't go directly to Kleiner Perkins that would probably not be the right place to start what you probably want to do is find some people that are going to help you and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more And many times that first money comes from friends and family it might come from angel investors, and now angel investors are changing a great deal. Not as much in life sciences where they do exist, and there's what's called bands of angles, but really in the digital side where the super angels are really coming forward. And these are people that are not only writing small checks, but they're starting to write larger checks, and so people are coming potentially to venture capital a little bit later. So normally those angel rounds are a few, could be $50,000, a few hundred thousand dollars, maybe up to a million or two dollars, and that's normally when we see people coming to us where they 've raised about a million or two dollars, and they 're looking for their first quote true institution around of, of financing." so what i 'm going to do is walk through kind of the life, the financing life of uh, a life science venture. So we talk about that angel round, right? Two, about two hundred thousand to two million. and then we get to this series A round, and so i 'm going to come back to this in a second, but I want to talk a little bit about how these companies get valued because people ask me that all the time. I've got this great idea. What's my value? Okay? Let me tell you, there's no formula on how these values happen, right? So with a big company, if big company's buying another company, they're trying to value, they do discounted fast cash flow analysis to figure out a valuation or a net present value to figure that out. You can't do that in our businesses. So in this example, we picked a pre-money of $5, of $5 million. Now, how did we arrive at $5 million well it's k- kind of about the number that a very new venture with an unproven technology many times they come in and they're valued in that anywhere between 2 and 10 million dollar range so they've raised a million dollars they've done some good work they've got some intellectual property they have some good ideas on how they want to move forward so let's pick that pre-money of, of $5 million let's just make this easy especially for me it's $1 share so the founders have 5 million shares because that's the pre-money of five million they're going to divide that up between what they keep and what they're going to put in a management pool and that equity will be used to attract other talent to the company and then kleiner Perkins says that's great you have a five million dollar valuation you need five million dollars we're going to put five million dollars in and buy five million shares okay so then the post money value would be ten million right the five million pre five million new money and ten million and then the post-money fully diluted ownership would be Kleiner Perkins would own 50%, the founders would own 30 and the management pool would own 20%. So that's very similar to what most cap tables look like right after a Series A investment if you just have one investor uh, going in the company. So let's go back to this. So you've gotten that investment, your $5 million. So normally what that gets you in a life science venture is kind of a first in human experience. So you take your technology, you cobble it together, it may not be your final technology, but you try it in a patient. That's the first thing. Then you need to raise money again, the Series B round, and what's your goal when you raise money the next time? Well, to have a higher valuation on the company so that the new investor has to pay more for those shares. So they get fewer shares and it dilutes you less. Right? The fewer shares you sell, the less dilution you get. So that's really the process you go through all the, all the way through. And this would be a basic 510K device venture where you're probably going to raise 50 to 60 million dollars over the life of the venture from four to five venture capitalists over that time. So when we look back at successful companies that we've invested in, what are those success factors? Remember I talked about the leadership and the passionate founders. There's no substitute for that. Ventures focused on large underserved growing markets obviously make a lot of sense. Reasonable financings for both investors um, and entrepreneurs. A sense of urgency obviously. We talk a lot about missionaries not mercenaries. So we want people that are excited about doing something big and important to change something, not about what the exit is going to be. If they're focused on the exit, those are usually fairly short conversations in our partnership, because we want people that are focused on big ideas and moving things forward. And if that happens, the exit will take care of itself. So this is what I call trade secrets. So when people come to me, the number one thing that, that turns me off is if people aren't balanced. Okay remember, we're venture capitalists. Uh, we, We understand these are very early companies. We understand there's tons of risk. So don't be afraid if you come in to talk about what the risks are. Yes, be passionate about what you're doing. Yes, be optimistic about what you're doing. But don't be afraid to talk about the risk. So people that are balanced in their view. Now, we want passionate people. And obviously, to be a great entrepreneur, you can't be rational, right? Because people are going to tell you it's a dumb idea. They're going to say no to you all the time. And that passion is what's going to make the company happen. But at the same time, having some balance is good. Here's an example. Often, people will come in and we get to the five-year P&L, and it will look like this hockey stick. And not one, one device company in the history of mankind has ever achieved this hockey stick. So you'll ask the people, well, you know, where did you come up with that number? Well, I think this would be a really good company. Yeah, you're right. That would be a great company. But you want to be balanced when you do that. You want to show the passion, obviously, and the idea and the vision. I think people, that's contagious, and we want to see a big vision for the company. We want, you should really leverage, I mean, this Bay Area is incredible, the number of people that are willing to help you for nothing just because they want to help you. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Ask people. People rarely say no when you ask them for help. And and that's on your strategy, on which VCs to go to, people that they know, uh, ways to position the business, all those things. You can find people, tons of them in this area, that are willing to help. I mentioned don't focus on the exit. You have to be persistent. Even the best ventures were said no to many, many times. I think you've heard that focus on just getting the top people so I would focus on fewer people get get the best possible people you can possibly find and obviously we enjoy being around people like you do that are fun to be around and are excited about what they're doing so I would certainly focus on that also so what I want to do now is talk about what's so unique about our our ecosystem here and you can maybe bring this down to you as an individual so one of the things you need to have an innovation ecosystem is you need well-trained people so if you don't have large companies, and I'll use life science as an example, I work for Guidant. We, we had 2,000 employees, well-trained people in the device industry in the Bay Area. Then you go up to South San Francisco to Genentech. You cannot go to a biotech startup in the Bay Area that doesn't have ex Genentech people. You cannot go to a device startup in the Bay Area that doesn't have ex Guidant people. So those are the people that need to be there at critical mass. And so, for instance, in Research Triangle, North Carolina, they've got the biotech, but they don't have the device people, and there are not that many device ventures there because they don't have the people to work in those companies. Same thing with Intel and HP and others. You cannot go to an IT venture and not have people that worked worked at these companies. So that's an important part of the formula. Another part is the capital infrastructure, so having the VCs, having the lawyers that were willing to do the work at risk, having the people like IDO, and then there's a list, number of people here at Stanford, of serial entrepreneurs that do company after company. Uh, The thing though that for me, and the one that was missing there that I normally have are the great universities. So you've got University of California, you've got UCSF, you've got Stanford, and obviously you have the research engines at those bring, as well as the talented people. The one that really drives a lot of it, in my view, is the fact that so much of our peninsula lives between two eighty and one hundred one. And every weekend, I have four boys, at my kids' sporting events, I bump into all kinds of people that I work with on a day-to-day basis. Doctors from Stanford, engineers, people I work with in the startups. And that proximity of interface is extremely powerful. in this peninsula, having water on each side makes a really big difference in that. And there are three other factors that don't get talked about a lot. One is the spirit of collaboration that I talked about earlier, where people will help you. And they're happy to help you. Uh, in what you're doing, and the diverse populations we have in the Bay Area, it's incredible that we have critical mass of these diverse populations. So people can come all from all over the world and come into our community and feel comfortable and have a critical mass of people like them that think like them um, is extremely important. And other areas of the country don't have that. And the last one, which I call the Palo Alto Cambridge reaction, and I'm from the Northeast, so I can say this: If you go to a cocktail party in Cambridge, you tell people the last three companies you did failed people will look at you sideways in Palo Alto if you have that same conversation people will say that's awesome that you (laughs) did that in those three companies And your fourth company is going to be a world-beater very very different type of type of culture one is not better than another they're just different and for innovation uh, we've got a very unique culture so I think it's a exciting place obviously other people are trying trying to recreate it also so in summary, you know, I, I always implore people to create their own innovation ecosystem. You've got all these incredible resources around you. P- get together with people that complement your skills, that stretch you, that do things differently, that think differently. You've got that opportunity. You know As I mentioned, team with people with other backgrounds than your own. Obviously, invest in IP, look for big opportunities, be passionate, and, and most important thing, and I was this way in my operating company, I, I hired people that were enjoyable to be around and other people enjoyed to be around, that were positive, optimistic. There's plenty of smart people that are positive and optimistic. Put those people around you and you'll have a great environment to do that. So with that, I would love to take questions. Thank you. So,
0: I'm going to start out. Okay. Uh, okay. So, is an executive
1: you, privilege. That I, I, well, to I'm
0: just going to let other people percolate okay. ideas. So I mean, people think of venture capitalists as risk takers, but really isn't your job to try to squeeze all the risk out of the venture? Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So as I mentioned earlier, that we're willing to accept risk. Uh, there's a certain level of risk that we're willing to accept. And really what our job is, as Tina mentioned, is to really try to mitigate the risk we've we, best we possibly can. And many people describe it the white-hot risk, whether that's a clinical risk or a technical risk. What we try to do, as I mentioned earlier, is put those risks up front and solve for those risks before we get five, six, seven years and a hundred million dollars of capital down the road. So yes, and so that's what we're continually doing and, and we, we try, to, try to look at it. Unfortunately, sometimes it's hard because over a eight, six, eight-year period, Things can change dramatically in the market. Another technology can come out of somewhere. And that's really why there's a high mortality rate in early stage venture capital. Not all the companies, I showed you a lot of logos, are very successful companies. We probably have another 100, 150 companies that were not successful, okay? Now, they could have been great ideas, and for different reasons, they didn't happen. So what we try to do is we try to look in those three big buckets of risk and within each of those we try to do that. And we do a lot of pattern matching. So we're looking at a lot of companies over many years and working with many companies. We have some patterns of things that worked and patterns of things that didn't work. And we try to pattern match those the best we can to minimize risk. But all of these ventures are risky. That's why they call them ventures, right? Um, Some will fail. Uh, we probably aren't doing our job right if some of them don't fail because if you shoot really high and you do what we call in our firm you do the the black swans or the grand challenges some of those are gonna fail right in life sciences the failure rates probably not as high in IT Um, but in IT the home runs are bigger home runs than they are in, in life sciences so we have to have a lower lower failure rate If you think about venture capital it's really about slugging percentage right how many home runs you hit Versus batting average, how many singles you hit. Because a home run or two can make up for many companies that don't do well. Um, And so we have to balance that. Yeah. Um,
0: So, uh, as I know, uh, this industry did not very well last 10 years. So, can you say what is your opinion? Why? Sure. And what do you think uh, will be in the future for this industry? Sure.
1: So the, uh, I guess the observation was, that was <laughs> is that the VC industry has not done well over the last 10 years. And I, I think that's very fair if you look at, the, look at the industry as a whole. And if you take out some great outcomes like, like Google and others, I think it's very true. I think the last few years are starting to improve. And if you look at the history of venture capital, um, a lot of the success has really been built around the strength of the public markets, the ability to do, take companies out as an IPO. Now in life sciences, especially in the device area, I am, about 90% of the companies get acquired they don't get public, but in the digital sector, sector obviously, the public markets are extremely important. So if you look at the history of the industry, a lot of the success or the large returns were over kind of three-year periods. And if you look over the last 40 years, there's probably five or six three-year periods where a great deal of the returns to LPs were created. We haven't had one of those three-year periods in the last 10 years. And so until we have another set of those, another wave of three-year periods which I think we will uh, and unfortunately they're very hard to predict. I think we were headed towards that in 2007, 2008 and then obviously the, the global financial crisis really hurt that. So we, many firms including us had a lot of great companies that were timed very well to participate in that and did not because of that. Now I think you're seeing, your observation is what investors are observing obviously, and that's why it's been harder to raise money. Um, I think that's changing. The top tier firms historically have not had a hard time raising money because they had a very small supply. So for instance, someone uh, like a Harvard is an investor in us and they, they had a certain amount of money they were able to invest in our funds. That didn't change for 20 years and their endowment went from 3 or 4 billion to 25 billion during that same time. So venture capital in the top tier firms became a very scarce asset. Um, The other thing with venture capital is, remember these funds are 10 years long. So it takes a long time to cycle through funds. So for the industry to change dramatically in size, et cetera, will take time. We are in a process now where the industry is shrinking again. not super dramatically because it takes time, but it is shrinking a little bit, which I think will ultimately be healthy for the industry. You saw how fast we grew there. Anytime any industry grows that fast, it probably doesn't grow as effectively as it should. And so I think we have a chance to do that. So your point's well taken. If the industry doesn't generate good returns over the next three to five years, it will be harder and harder for firms to raise money. But I do think if you look what's happening, some. Companies, obviously, are getting out on the public market now. They're doing fairly well in the public market. We believe there is, for high-quality companies, an opportunity to to become a public company. And so hopefully that trend will continue. And that will help solve. Because the quality of the companies, if you look in the portfolio of the venture capital firms, there's very good companies that normally in a healthy IPO market would be able to get out very easily. So I don't think it's, it's due to the quality of the companies. It's more due to the international kind of global economic issues and the impact that's had on the US in other markets. So hopefully that will change. Yeah. Um, I was
0: wondering if at any point of time you or your company has seen how well a startup has been and the
1: Yes, what did you start um, yeah, the answer is yes. Um, the one thing we know, and so the question was, has our firm uh, ever misjudged how well a company would do? And I, Are you you're talking about on the upside and downside? Uh, j- let's just do upside. We're optimistic. Uh, yeah, the one, the one thing we know, and I, I would say that we're probably wrong all the time because when these companies come in, they're so early, for instance, when they put up those financial um, projections, the one thing we know is they're wrong, right? They're either going to be better or not as good. To be fair, in most companies, it takes longer to achieve what that expectation. Still could be a highly successful company, but I think the companies and the entrepreneurs early on tend to misjudge how long things are going to take. And then in our world, like in life sciences, if you have something like an FDA slowdown, which we've had recently, that can add time takes longer to enroll clinical trials than we always think they do on paper so it usually moves out a few years certainly there have been examples uh, Google obviously Google was the, the sixth or seventh search engine when it came to them to Kleiner obviously our partners thought it was a special company but obviously you wouldn't predict that um, that would be hard to do to your partnership but there there are many examples of ones that have done extremely well sometimes it just takes longer than you expect how does the negotiation between V.C. and National Entrepreneur Work in terms of the uh, pre-money valuation, is there a whole lot of like, back and forth? It's like great on our side. No. Uh, how does it go? Um, I think, you know, the, the fun thing about this, both I think for the entrepreneurs and, and for the V.C.s is every one of these dialogues is unique every single situ- situation is unique. And it is, it's hard for the entrepreneurs. There, there's two stages of a venture that I think are extremely hard for entrepreneurs. Number one is those type of discussions with you're, quote, putting in a value on their baby and their dream, right? That's hard. But what most of the thoughtful entrepreneurs will do is they'll talk to other entrepreneurs. They'll go and talk to people and they'll get advice from other entrepreneurs on how that dialogue went, how you discuss that, how you want to deal with, with that person. The challenge is for both sides is you're you're talking about entering into a marriage for eight to ten years. I mean you have to think about it that way, right? So the, the negotiation you be careful on how that negotiation is. And part of it really depends on are there other is there competition. You know one of the things that will affect the pre money obviously of ventures is if there 's three or four firms that are looking at that venture and all of them put in term sheets, that will impact the valuation a little bit so I think it 's a delicate balance between that and really, at the end of the day if it 's four million or six million or two million or eight million if it 's a successful venture that 's really not going to matter that much for either party at the end of the day, although all of us kind of have our belief sets on what i 've never Uh, been in a situation where we were excited about doing a venture and we didn't get there on valuation. Uh, Now there were times that the valuation just made it something we couldn't be interested in, but if it was in the range, uh, we were always able to figure that out. The second time it's really hard uh, for founders and this happens in a high percentage of companies including the most successful ones there comes a time that that entrepreneur because of his or, his or her unique skill sets that make them a great entrepreneur don't necessarily make them a good manager when the comp- or leader when the company gets to scale and that's another time where you have to bring in professional management the people that worked for some of those big companies in many cases to help scale the company to another side obviously Google's example where they brought Eric Schmidt and it's worked out great now that Larry's back running the company again Uh, Microsoft there's many many examples of that in most of our companies that happens at some point the ideal situation is where you're able to keep the founder involved in the company because he or she has all the passion the people love to work with them they tell the story better than anyone else that's the perfect combination That happens maybe half the time you're able to do that. Sometimes that entrepreneur just doesn't want to work in a larger environment, and he or she might want to go off and found another company, which may be their passion to do that. So, those are the two times the discussions are the most difficult uh, with entrepreneurs. Now, that second phase, I would be really upset if the entrepreneur didn't want to give up, wanted to give up their company. Right. I mean, this is their baby, something they worked incredibly hard for. So you want a certain level of friction, obviously you don't want it to be destructive, but you certainly want that. Yeah?
0: Can you tell us a, a bit more about the type of relationship with the universities, research sure. universities? Yeah. For instance, you relate directly with the OTLs, <coughs> you, you have a direct sharing sure. with the researchers. Yeah. So, the
1: OTLs, we probably have less direct, we, we certainly hear from the OTLs, and Stanford does a good job. They'll send us a list of all the ventures and the IP that's there on a regular basis. But really, where we, where we would prefer to spend our time is where we do spend our time is with the, the scientists or the physicians or the business people that are starting the company. Our world is, is entrepreneur centric, and everything we do should be focused on entrepreneur. Now, we develop that relationship with entrepreneur, then we'll work with OTL to help get the technology out. But even there it's very helpful to have the entrepreneurs helping you in that process because if you think of the entrepreneur is the customer of OTL. Right? Uh, We're not the customer of OTL. We're an important part of the ecosystem and OTL wants funding for their companies but really we focus on um, either the clinicians or the scientists or the business people that have ideas. That's our core focus
0: talk a little bit about how you found the deals that you ultimately invested in, if any of those were over the transom cold sure. calls, or if those were all relationships from the past? Or
1: yeah, that's a great question. So the question was, the, the ventures that I personally have invested in, how did, how did those come to me, or did, how did those come to Kleiner Perkins? Um, and the que- second part of the question was, did some just come over the transom? So we get a lot of things that come over to Transom and, and there's a lot of people out there, they're bankers and they're called finders, that work with companies and they play an important role and they, what they do is they try to match your company with investors. The challenge with that is I probably get five or six of those emails a day. Um, and so just take that number, just say you get a, a thousand a year, and it, it, literally that many, there's that many out there that you get. I haven't invested in one of those companies. I don't even think I've taken a meeting from maybe one or two of those companies. So all the ones I've invested in have all come through other venture capitalists that I work with and know, or entrepreneurs or physicians or other people calling me and telling about it. Some people that I've just met randomly at meetings in different places with an idea. Some cases where we see an area that we're extremely interested in and we go out and try to find the people. So we we search the IP and other areas to do that. But nothing that's just come... Randomly over the transom, it's almost all come with some form of referral, and that's why I said so important. If you're going to go out and raise venture capital, to talk to all these resources you have around you here in the valley, the people that know the venture capitalists, uh, that have relationships, that have started companies, they're the ones that are going to get you in to see the venture capitalists. And never, if I have a recommendation from one of those type of people, why not take a meeting with a company? So it's it's just the way it works, and a lot of it is just. Um, the comfort we have um, in understanding where the company came from and the people. Yeah? Uh, what do you think of the entrepreneur maybe getting an iBanker to help facilitate the structure? To, um, for the structure of the opportunity up front? Yeah. You know, it's, it's really not appropriate at that stage. It, you saw, I mean literally that's what the cap table looks like. You know, I kids people, you don't have to be a finance person to do venture capital because you can add, subtract and divide. That's what we do. I mean, that's literally it, right? And so for early stage ventures, uh, a banker is probably not, not very helpful. For a later stage venture, uh, you know, maybe a banker maybe can help you think about how to present your company effectively. So let's say it's a later stage venture that's a few year, two or three years away from the, a capital market, there might be that. That said, uh, I have yet to see a banker involved with a company at the stage that we look at them, even if they're a later stage. Um, the bankers are calling us and they want to meet with the companies because they want to take them public someday, but the banker did not help uh, put us together. Now, there are bankers that are helpful that obviously see what's out there. They know what's coming because that's their job also, and they'll meet with the company and they'll call us and say, We did see this company that's really interesting, but they're not representing the company. They're just kind of um, passing it on to us more often. Yeah. Uh,
0: my question is that
1: the company is for Uh I mean that the as, uh, I came from Japan. Yeah. And recently, I feel some mindset <laughs> of changing. Yes. As, uh, the companies for uh, stockholders, or well, many people are now thinking about more uh, company for uh, employees, or companies for society. Well, yes. I think after earthquake, big earthquake, uh, Japanese people were thinking uh, changing uh, a uh, mind mindset a more uh, respect the servant. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Kind of okay. So could you give me a comment about that? Sure. Yes. You, you might, I lived in Tokyo for two years. Okay. So and um, I was always struck by um, the opportunity that existed in, in Japan uh, for more innovation. But it, as you know, there, historically there's been a lot of regulations. So most of the physicians are public servants. And so a public servant is, is really limited on how are he or she can interface with private industry. And I think that is was one of the big challenges in life sciences uh, on innovation. I know um, that's starting to change and I know the government is looking at ways to drive innovation but a lot of the things we talked about earlier that's important to have. You've got the great universities, obviously you have a lot of technology, Uh, you have a lot of very capable people, but there hasn't been all the other parts of the infrastructure that we taught. There hasn't been as much venture capital, there hasn't been the ability, right, for the doctors and the scientists and the business people to work together on a regular basis and so it's more the cultural aspects I think have been more of the challenge because certainly the talent is there the technology is there and there just hasn't been the same support mechanism of the service groups uh, in Japan and I think that's starting to change and maybe that change can start at the great universities um, would probably be a good place I think that's why it hasn't happened yes that MBA is a very common activity among venture capitalists. So, yes. Do you
0: think that MBA is helpful for entrepreneurs? Um, second question is, you said that try to get the best advisor to be on your board.
1: Yes. For first-time entrepreneurs, what do you think is a good way to approach uh, the people you want to be on your board? Yeah. Okay. okay, so let me try to repeat all these questions. So the, the first one was around MBAs. Do you think an MBA, because a lot of VCs have MBAs, is an MBA important for an entrepreneur? I, I would probably say no. Um, I, I think it's, per, it's, it's a great de- I have an MBA. So it's a great degree. Um, it's, it's helpful because if you... If you have a narrow background and let's say if you're in one area of engineering or you're an accountant and you want to broaden your view of all the different parts of business, et cetera, and all MBAs aren't created equally, certainly here at Stanford and other places you get more of an entrepreneurial feel to it, uh, I don't think you need that. Because if you look at most of the people that start these companies, I, I bet you would find very few have MBAs. There more would have PhDs or there are more science backgrounds or, or masters. Um, probably fewer MBAs, so I I don't think that's a prerequisite. Obviously, it's a great degree, and if you want to do that and you're excited about it, uh, it's a good thing to do. The second part of our question was really focused on who do you go to and how do you ask uh, for help? I think in your setting, you've got a great opportunity. You have people like Tina and all the other people in your program that know many people in that ecosystem I talked about. Um, And I would talk to other people that start companies. I I would cold call people and and just call them up and ask them, send them an email, ask them for help uh, to do that. I would go to places where they are um, and just try to speak with them, trade a card with them. Again, I I have found most people are very willing, willing to help. What you probably want is you want advice and you want people that have done these kind of things historically uh, that can help guide you through that. And, and that's what I would do. Nothing, nothing fancy. Yeah.
0: I, I know that you deal a lot with uh, science-based companies, but what do you think the role of uh, uh, people who study humanities within sure. entrepreneurial ventures and what level, how much of a team's composition can be made up of
1: those Sure. That's a great question. So the, the question was really around many, many people, what I've talked about, many people have technical degrees. Um, and the question was for folks that have humanities background, how that can get married with, with uh, a technical background. You know, I, I think that, first of all, I think there's a combination of both is great. Um, you know, I think what, the reason why the companies start with those technical things is they're normally solving something technical right? It's either uh, to put the software program and the algorithms together or to put the product together or to put the molecule together. I mean, there's a reason why it starts there with the expertise around how to do that. In the first few years of these companies, it's really spent on that type of work. Remember, I talked about the development phase of the company? And, and that's why many times the founders are those type of people and they are the leaders of the company during those first few years because you need that technical expertise uh, to run the company. Obviously, as the company continues to grow, having some other sensibilities and a balance in the company is extremely important. And in most cases, the company will never achieve what they want you know the founders also want their products in a lot of their goals many times is to have a lot of people get their products for me when I was an operating guy what really got me excited was not what this not that the sales line was growing dramatically but the fact that that meant that more people were getting our technology right and I think that's how founders think they're not going to get it there unless they have people with other backgrounds and other, other, other ways of viewing things. I think Apple's a perfect example, and the, the more you'll read about the company, around a technical expertise but also a sensibility Around what people want, and in uh, Isaacson's book about Steve Jobs, it talks a lot about the marriage of that having the very technical people, but just as importantly, the people that knew the personal touch and what people wanted in the user interfaces. So I think that marriage is is a really important thing. And I think here at Stanford, you have many programs where you try to bring those different type of people together. And I think that the best is to have a multi kind of function, disciplinary approach is really important. Yeah? Uh,
0: what are some of the most common mistakes you see when founders pitch you, and uh, how should we prevent those mistakes?
1: Sure. Um, I, you know, the, the two that, that I mentioned is one, balance, that they, that they just don't talk about or appreciate the risk. Remember, we, we're okay with risk. Uh, that's what we do, and we try to mitigate it, as Tina said. So I think that one is one that always strikes me. And the other is if they have three pages our three PowerPoint slides on the exit of the business because that, for us, is not what we're thinking about when you come in. What we're thinking about is an exciting idea focused on a big market um, with a big vision. Uh, That's what we want, right? We're we're not now. Will we think about that once you leave the room and we talk about it. We'll do that pattern matching and we'll say, yeah, that that technology was novel. They have IP. It's, there's a large existing market that's growing or a big potential market that's growing there. These people are awesome and they're going to attract great capital. Um, Yeah, this is the kind of things that the big companies are interested in that they don't have themselves. We'll do that. But I don't think that's the entrepreneur's role to do that. The entrepreneur is to really pass on and transmit the excitement about his or her idea, the company, what the company can become, um, and get people excited about that idea. Uh, yeah.
0: So you come from a background with, uh, in political science, yeah. you are a White House fellow, and now you oh, are... Oh, oh no,
1: that, that was my dad. Oh, sorry. That's <laughs> okay. Um, I would have been happy to do all those things. Okay. But. Okay. <laughs> so you're investing now in, um, in uh, high-tech companies, especially internet companies? Sure. Um, just debating right now is H.R. 3261, the Stop Online Piracy Act. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I am not familiar with it. Okay. Yeah. So what, what the issues we deal with a lot of our companies are HIPAA, right, security issues and privacy issues. So we spend a lot of time focusing on, on those with many of the healthcare IT companies, um, but not the, not that issue. Okay. Yeah. So I'd be curious to know, are there any um, supposedly hot areas in the life sciences where you personally just don't have any interest in or a little bit in you see contrary, contrary views? Sure. Um, you mean areas that we're not interested in, but others are excited about, Certainly or? there's a lot of interest in, but you, your firm is just not interested in. Sure. Uh, so the question was, are there other areas of life sciences that there seems to be a lot of interest in that we may not be that interested in as a firm? Um, the, our interest is somewhat driven by our individual backgrounds. So if you look at a venture capital firm in our life science group, so we have someone like me who has a lot of operating experience focuses on um, devices. We have some, uh, Brooke Byers, has focused historically on some devices, but diagnostics and molecular diagnostics. Uh, Beth Seinberg's an MD who ran development at Amgen, so she focuses on pharma and biotech. Uh, And so you could see our universe there, and the only difference outside of those three is really in the IT side where we are now healthcare IT historically if you look at venture returns has not been nearly as successful as devices in biotech. Now we believe that's going to change with these IT enabled services like I talked about and because we have other partners that focus on mobile, and the internet, in consumer businesses, we believe there's some really exciting opportunities there. We haven't found a lot of what we like yet because the business models are a little bit unproven and the healthcare consumer is a fickle uh, consumer. We consume healthcare differently than we consume other things in our lives. Um, and so that's formed our universe. I would say if you look at where healthcare investing is going, most of it sits under that umbrella that I just described so I don't now each firm may have a different thesis on how they want to how they want to participate in devices or how they want to participate in diagnostics that certainly could happen but I don't think there's any you know totally contrarian kind of areas out there yeah.
0: So I've got a question. You talked about network being so important in finding deals and finding uh, different entrepreneurs mm-hmm. to connect with. How do you keep your active network and, like, down to the specifics? Like, do you use Google contacts? Do you have your sure. own database? Or how do you do that? And how do you really stay active in your network when it keeps growing larger and larger?
1: Sure. Uh, so the question was about we talked a lot about network and having an active network. And, um, and how do you do that? I, I think all of us do it differently. Um, I, you know, when I was talking about that, My, our networks, we just continue to build and we don't have any fancy way that we we manage our networks So we don't don't have, you know, a social network we build around our, our networks. I think it's really just simply things like contacts and continually touching base with people. What I was talking about for the networks for entrepreneurs and for people that potentially want to be a VC down the road, that's a network of just staying current and in front of people and meeting with people and being, quite frankly, at the right place at the right time, as I mentioned before. Um, so I think you know this generation representing this room does a much better job of networking than my generation did coming through. Uh, and I would just keep those networks as active as you possibly can, because as I mentioned before, these opportunities, whether it's an entrepreneurial opportunity or an investment opportunity, are very organic and present kind of out of phase. Anyway.
0: I hope you will join me in thanking Dana. This was totally Thanks. terrific. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. you have been listening to the Draper fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.